All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about opening up BC's economy, you see how other provinces now have laid out some very detailed plans for opening up their economy. Notably yesterday, Saskatchewan and the Premier there, Scott Moe, uh, bringing out a very detailed kind of multi-phase plan for the economy in Saskatchewan to start opening up about 10 days from now, so like a week Monday. Have a listen to this report from Global News, uh, Roberta Bell. These usually busy streets have been quiet, with businesses closed and people staying home. It's a response to limit the spread of the novel coronavirus in Regina, one that officials say has been working, but that can't continue indefinitely. We have to find the middle ground that continues to keep our case numbers low and keep Saskatchewan people safe, while at the same time allowing for businesses to reopen and Saskatchewan people to get back to work. Saskatchewan is the first province to announce its plan to reopen. Okay, that's uh, you heard the voice there of the Saskatchewan Premier announcing a reopen a phased-in reopening plan for the Saskatchewan economy. That's yesterday. Now, of course, they got fewer COVID-19 cases than we do, but should we be starting to talk about some more detail, putting some plans in front of the people of BC, give them some hope that we can start to get this economy ramped up again. All right, the BC government has appointed an economic recovery task force here to lead us through this, and I got two members of the task force on the line right now, so let's talk to them. Greg Davignon, he is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Business Council of BC. Greg, thanks for coming on again. Morning, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Laird Cronk. He is the president of the BC Federation of Labor. Laird, welcome back. Good morning, Mike. Okay, guys, we got business and labor on together. I love it. So, Greg, let me go to you first. What is your take on the current status of the BC economy, and when do you think we can start to open up again? Well, the one thing, Mike, I would say at the outset is, look, we've been working together and following provincial government and Dr. Henry's orders, and through that collaboration, we've managed to plank the curve and done it in a fairly unique way globally, in fact, where we've kept uh, portions of the economy open, but we've also protected public health. And our trajectory now is about the same as South Korea, which is quite unique in the world. But, you know, as we said a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're suffering an economic consequence this quarter that we just haven't seen. Uh, probably 7 to 11% decline in real GDP. Um, that compares to the 0809 financial crisis where we saw 2.6% decline and this is these are annualized numbers and it could mean as many as 180,000 to 300,000 people out of work and so despite parts of our economy have continued to stay open it is critical in the very short term that we begin to restart the economy in the next week or so so that businesses and the personal toll from bankruptcies and job losses um are avoided because they could be more devastating, Mike, at a personal level and our collective health than the virus itself. Okay, when you say you'd like to see something happening in the next week or so, what specifically would you like to see? Well, restarting doesn't mean getting back to normal and flipping a switch overnight. In fact, it's going to be a slow, measured, coordinated uh, path forward in much the same way that we've had that coordinated, measured path on managing the public health issue. And that means um, business and employees working to, first of all, ensure the safety of their employees and the workplace. And that's going to be at the forefront. But secondly is to make sure, like other jurisdictions of the world, like Denmark and Germany and others that have opened up their economies, that they do that in really smart ways. And so that we are innovative, but recognize that the world that we're going to be in for the next probably six to 12 months is going to be far different than the world we left in 
February. And when we emerge from this crisis, we're going to have incredible opportunities and prosperity, but it's going to be a different world as well. So we've got to start to condition ourselves that we're going to have to have these some of these restrictions and constraints to make sure that we don't have uh, another influx of this uh, virus uh, crop up and set us back to where we were a month ago. Okay, Laird Kronk is the president of the BC Federation of Labor. Laird, what is the perspective of labor on this? Uh, thanks, Mike. Look, um, a lot of similarities uh, through a worker lens. And, you know, we represent half a million uh, workers in really all facets of uh, British Columbia life. There's an awful lot of workers hurting out there. There's an awful lot of workers uh, who've been out of work. There's also workers who are still doing the amazing work on the front lines to help us all uh, bend the curve and, and beat this uh, horrific disease. So uh, job number one for us uh, is to make sure we respect the PHO, the, uh, the health officer's orders, make sure as things do come back online. Look, I think it's prudent that the, that the Premier and the province have brought together a group of stakeholders, business, labour, NGOs, uh, representatives of Indigenous communities to say, uh, give us your input, give us your expertise as we start to prudently look at how we do this as the PHO uh, says we can do it. So we respect yeah. the PHO. And then job number one is to make sure that workers are safe when they go back on the job. We yeah. certainly don't want people going to work sick. We don't want um, practices on the job where uh, we get back into the problems we've had and all that we've done goes for naught. So it's a matter of uh, making sure that we do this right in a measured way and that we work together on it. Okay, the number one job of a union, Laird, I, I grew up in a union home. My dad was a, was a, a shop steward. Um, the number one job, I always remember him saying, was like the health and safety of, of the workers. How do you open up these employment, these workplaces and keep people safe? Like, do you think we can get the restaurants open and keep restaurant workers safe? That's a great question, Mike. So we did hear uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, really a few days ago challenge business to be innovative and in making sure that they can live to the distancing and the other measures as things do start to reopen. Uh, as the labor movement, we are, of course, going to make sure that uh, we advocate for safe workplaces. Look, it's the employer's responsibility to make sure that the workplace is safe. We have a workers' compensation board and prevention officers to make sure that's the case. But I think we need to work collaboratively, and that's why I'm excited about this task force, to say before workers get there, let's look together at what those processes and procedures should be so the workers have the confidence when they go back. When could we open up, though? Like, when can we open up the restaurants? Can we open up restaurants next week? Like, what are your, what yeah, are your so, specific thoughts? Yeah, so my thought is we're doing the preparation. At the request of the Premier, we're bringing our expertise all together to work collaboratively. I'm going to leave the decision of when actually we start to implement to the experts. In this case, it's Dr. Bonnie Henry and the, and the health minister. Okay, Greg Davignon, like, tell me a little bit about this economic recovery panel and the stuff you guys are doing. Are you guys actually putting together like a plan or are you just making recommendations to government? How does this work? Yeah, we've been meeting, uh, Mike, once a week. And really, as you can appreciate, the focus has been really working collaboratively together to solve short-term problems. So we've been working on issues of how do we get PPE? You, you covered a story where the Business Council, working with a bunch of folks in the tech sector and others, were able to put together a platform through Traction on Demand as an example to both manufacture domestically and access globally masks and other materials we need. Yeah. So there's those the complexity of the economy, I think one of the big learnings of this that everyone is appreciating is we're all getting a crash course of how important the economy is to our personal and collective well-being and how complex it is. 
for our quality of life. And so we're working through a lot of those details. Laird and I talk a couple of times a week. We've talked about transit. We've talked about how we actually, to your point earlier, create those uh, safe workplaces. And what's happened is, is that that collaboration uh, with common purpose and speed of outcome has really been, in my view, uh, amazing and it's something I hope we don't lose. So for example, we're getting some really good decisions done in a week that would have normally taken years. And uh, so what you're seeing... Can you give me, can you give here, me an example of that? Yeah, so here's a good example where um, uh, in the last, uh, I would say, two weeks, uh, if you went to a, a grocery store earlier, there was lots of trepidation and anxiety for obvious reasons around uh, how people can interact. Now when you go to most grocery stores, They've taken extraordinary measures to put up plexiglass uh, containment around the cashiers to protect them. They're doing massive sanitation. Um, They've got stickers to make sure that people are social distancing. They've got security managing crowd control going in. Well, all of those kind of things got put together really quickly, and that's a collaboration of both employees and employers working together. Your experience as a kid growing up in a union household is probably a bit different today where it's a shared responsibility, whether you're a union uh, environment or the 80% that aren't in the private sector, where employees and employers work together to make sure they've got safe, efficient workplaces, and we do it in a way that everyone goes home safely at night. And that's the right. commitment we've got, but also to the consumer, because the consumer has to be able to interact and socially interact in a way as we start to restart the uh, economy that matters. And right now we're about 30% of our normal activity, and Bonnie Henry said last week that we could probably get to 60% right. of that social interaction, but do it in smart, methodical, and measured ways. Right, right. And I guess Greg Davignon, Business Council of BC, Laird Cronk, he's the president of the BC Federation of Labor. We've got business and labor. Your calls to them, star 9898 on your cell. Ed in Vancouver, hi. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm pretty confident that the money will be there to keep this going through the federal government until end of May, but you have to plan in advance of that. When they're talking about providing $2,000 a month for people and then students and so on and so forth, it's going to add up in a real hurry, and you can't run that forever. You've got to have a timeline. So now would be a good time to come out with a timeline. This is what we anticipate. Things may change, but this is what we anticipate. Thank you for the call. Let me go back to Laird Cronk from the BC Federation of Labor. Laird, what do you say to that? I mean, can we just is the money that's gushing out from all levels of government is that sustainable? When do we get back to work? Well, again, I mean, good question. Thanks, Ed. Uh, look, it's uh, it's really going to be up to the science so that we don't uh, get into the quagmire of going backwards and having more infections and having to shut down for a longer period and lose everything we've gained, but. But we do need to plan now. He's right. And it's prudent to the premier to bring this group together. Uh, look, we need, we need private business to, um, to come back up when the time is right. We, there's also a role for government to play. Right now, it's supports for unemployed workers and supports for business. Moving forward, it'll be supports for building infrastructure, for making sure uh, that we put people to work and put people to work on the gaps that we're missing, like the transit and the hospitals, and get this economy moving in both the private and the public sector, but do it in a safe way. Safe way for workers, for sure. Greg Davignon, you got a take on the amount of money that's being spent by all levels of government? Yeah, Ed's question is is bang on, is that governments can't afford uh, over the medium term to be both the paymaster and the bank for every business and every employee in the, in the country. 
And uh, businesses uh, in Canada were indebted as were individuals. In fact, BC higher indebted levels than most of, most of the other countries. And so it's important to Laird's point that we get back to work and do it safely and smart. There's some short-term things, Mike, that we could be doing. Um, and there's already collaboration to Laird's point around safety. So there's clear rules in construction and the ports and mining now around working safely. And those, op- those uh, sectors are working, but they could do more. So, um, why does it take six years to get a permit to build something? We could be immediately going back with projects that are ready to go on rental housing, multifamily housing. There's billions of dollars of capital ready to go in our ports uh, and also in mining projects and other projects that are the big Clydesdales of the economy. Those are the things that create economic growth. They create uh, lots of jobs, high paying jobs, and people always think about them outside of Vancouver, but they supply 55% of the jobs in the lower mainland in Victoria. It's things like wow. professional services and technology firms and service firms and banking and food services and all those things that are tied together in a connected economy. So there's things governments can do to move quickly on opening up the economy and then making sure that employees and employers work safely together as that economy opens up. Fast permitting quick decision-making, not cutting corners, but being purposeful around getting things done and getting okay. people back to work. Let's back to the phone lines and speak to Catherine calling in from Kamloops. Hi, Catherine. Uh, good morning, Mike. Hi. Uh, I am wondering, with all this talk of uh, the economy reopening and trying to get things moving again, why are the banks closing their doors? The only access you have in some of them are the ATM machines, but you've got to now try and figure out which banks are open. I mean, they've got their doors closed. Okay, okay. Now, well, they're trying, to, they're trying to protect their employees. Greg, do you have any thoughts on that? I understand your, your caller's frustration. I mean, the banks are open, but they face the same challenges on what I would call consumer-facing businesses like restaurants and retail in that the personal interaction puts the employee at risk, it puts yeah. the environment of the bank at risk, and the customer at risk. And they're trying to manage those things within the provincial health officer's orders. And so people are being very creative. Um, Royal Bank and Van City and CIBC and others are doing all kinds of things online for their customers to make it more accessible. That's difficult sometimes for older customers or those that don't have access to the internet. And I'm sure the banks are more than happy to reach out and try and make accommodations for you to serve what you need. Let's go back to the phone lines. Dosert on in uh, Surrey. Hi. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. I was just worrying about barbershops and hair salons. Uh, any idea when they could open? No, we don't have a, we don't have a detailed plan on when they're when those are going to be reopened. But Laird Cronk, do you think the government? You think it's time for the government to start putting out a detailed plan about when this stuff will reopen? Well, I, I do think that's a great question to ask because it casts our mind to how different it is in different places in different sectors. So, you know, when the time is right, of course, we can't answer the question of when when they'll reopen. That's yeah. up to the medical professionals, but. Well, we is do it also need to start up to the politicians? What that looks like, is it also right? up to the politicians? Though we only got thirty seconds, but we did not elect the the health officials. What about the politicians? Should they be stepping up more and leading? Uh, well, I think we elected the politicians to make prudent decisions, and I think their decision to rely on the science is a prudent one. Yeah, yeah, and I think Mike, to your your question, you twenty um, seconds, Greg. Yeah, we need to make sure the science drives this so that people are protected and safe, but. 
politicians, business leaders, labor leaders need to step up arm in arm to go and get okay. the economy moving with a clear plan okay. to make sure that people have confidence to do it. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. With uh, we got a great show coming up for you today, including reopening the BC economy. When will the COVID nineteen restrictions be scaled back, and how will BC recover? from this pandemic a plan is being developed we're told there's a plan out there somewhere we see other provinces bringing their plan out you see the premier of saskatchewan yesterday rolled out a very detailed plan to reopen that province where is the plan in british columbia we're going to talk about that today on the show uh including at the bottom of the hour we're going to have an awesome panel here did you know that in british columbia there is an economic recovery task force in place planning to get the province back up on its feet, planning to get the, the economy opened again. So I got a great panel on that coming up at the bottom of the hour. Greg Davignon from the uh, BC Business Council, also the president of the BC Federation of Labor. So business and labor on this panel at the bottom of the hour. But first up, let's talk about that and a lots more uh, and lots more with my guest, McLean Kay for, from the orca.ca website. McLean, thanks a lot for coming in. Thank you for having me on. So let's talk about, first of all, the economy here right now. And we see other provinces opening up their economies. And we, I was just looking at the Saskatchewan plan. So May 4th, announced by the Saskatchewan Premier yesterday, that's when they start to reopen in Saskatchewan. So that's like, what, 10 days from now? It's a week from Monday. Yeah, it's a week Monday. So they're going to start opening up. They're opening up their campgrounds, right? They closed all the provincial parks here in BC. They're opening them up in Saskatchewan. Uh, they will start bringing, uh, opening up medical services. And you can go to the dentist. You'll be able to go to the dentist in Saskatchewan a week from now. What a, what a concept here. Physical therapy will be allowed. Now, the difference, of course, though, is they got, a, you know, they got a lot fewer cases of COVID-19 than we got. It's true. Right. But what do you think about BC? Is it time for a plan here, too? Yeah, I, I think we're we're at that point where we can start looking ahead. The premier has said nothing before sort of mid-May, which would be, you know, a week, two weeks after Saskatchewan. But I mean, if you look at the Saskatchewan plan, it is a sort of a timeline, sector by sector, industry by industry on when they project the businesses in each can reopen. I mean, it'll be flexible. And I'm sure there'll be some revisions and changes. But at least there is something that people can start to plan around. Yeah, I'm looking at the phase two plan. So it's like a multi-phase plan. So it starts, like you said, a week Monday. Then the next phase after that, May 19th. So two weeks after that, the second phase is opening up a whole bunch of businesses that are that are shut down right now. And then after that, they've got other phases outlined here. Now, there's no firm dates on the, the subsequent phases here, but it includes opening up personal services, opening up gyms and fitness facilities and licensed establishments and, and restaurants and childcare facilities. So again, though, you got to emphasize, though, that their caseload is way less. Yeah. All right. And in BC, you know, you got the public health officer saying, well, she would like to get the, the new caseload in BC down to like zero. Right. I mean, that that's a tall order. Should the politicians, do you think, be maybe stepping up and outlining a, a more detailed plan? For, for BC. I think so. And I hope that's happening behind the scenes. And again, yeah. it, it's not, you're, it's not a question of mandating that businesses will open. This is not a Donald Trump situation. You're not mandating that businesses will open on May the 4th. You're setting up a timeline sort of industry by industry when things could open, assuming things stay on the same trajectory. The premier has hinted at mid-May, maybe things like restaurants in a limited yeah. way, but yeah. I think that's as much detail as we've gotten so far. One, one of the things I think that's hopeful is that the government has said on the restaurants, for example, they've said, okay, uh, if you think that we can figure out a way to do this, and I don't think it's rocket science, I think we should be able to figure out a way you can open up some restaurants and still maintain 
the physical distance that's required. And the government is saying, come to us with a plan. Show us how you can do it. Right. So I think that's going on behind the scenes, too. You got the restaurant sector saying, OK, we're going to show you a plan how we can do this. And maybe that's a good way to go forward. But I think what the people people are looking for, though, is a little bit more detail and, and, and an indication that something's going on. Yeah, I think happening. I think that's it. Exactly. I think people yeah. want to be shown that there are people working on the you know, what's going to come after the wildfire starts to die out a little bit. And also that, you know, there are th- some things to look forward to, quite frankly. I yeah. think that we're at a point where people will at the very least want to see a light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's still a long ways off. But to know that, you know, maybe in May, maybe in June or whatever it is, we can start doing I think things. it's coming. I think the I think there's pressure building as we see other provinces start to open up. You see Washington State's got a plan, you know. Uh, I mean, some of the stuff that's going on south of the border sounds, uh, you know, off the scale. Like they shouldn't. They're, they're going too far. Like if you talk about the mayor of Las Vegas oh and... You know, Bonnie Henry talked about this yesterday and called out the mayor of Las Vegas a bit yesterday. She was saying, like, we want to open up all the casinos again. Let's get going. Or or the state of Georgia. Even Donald Trump was saying that Georgia was going too far in opening up the bowling alleys and the tattoo parlors. So, I mean, you can go too far. Yes. No one is suggesting that. Uh, what did the mayor of Las Vegas say? That she was going to use her uh, citizens as a control group? Yeah. She wanted that- basically Las Vegas to be like a Petri dish yeah. where they could, you know, see how many people get sick if they open everything up. Which is crazy to me. You're from Calgary, right? Yes, I am. Born and raised. So what did you think when you heard that the Calgary Stampede had been canceled? I mean, it, it's no surprise, given on what's what's going on. And of course, it's the only sane decision. But it's hard to describe just how devastating a blow this will be to the city. The Stampede is what makes Calgary special. It's a reflection of the city at its best. It's, uh, I mean, it's been going on since 1884. It's been annual since 1923. It survived the Great Depression, the Second World War, um, and the floods, floods, oh, yeah. floods in 2013, which was two weeks before the stampede and actually flooded the stampede. That grounds. was amazing in that flood when the entire, it looked like the, basically Calgary stampede was underwater, literally. It was. And, I mean, and they still, Get her. What do they say in Calgary? Get her done. Get her done. You got to get her done. And they, I still have my stampede shirt from that year, which said, come hell or high water. Yeah. And now this year, I mean, it's sad. And again, there is no other sane way to, to move forward, but yeah. I mean, there will be no come hell or high fever shirt. It's, yeah. uh, it's sad. Okay. Let's have a listen here to the mayor of Calgary. This is Nahid Nenshi talking about the troubles facing the city and the province of Alberta. The triple whammy is the public health impact, the global recession that's being brought on by the virus, and the never-before-seen challenges uh, in the energy sector in oil and gas. Okay, it's, yeah, it's like a triple whammy for Alberta. You're from Alberta. I mean, they're going through misery. I mean, before the COVID pandemic, they were already, you know, downtown Calgary had vacancy rates that have never been seen before. I mean, it's the city uh, and the province were already going through a terrible recession, uh, whatever you think of the causes. And so for this to be laid on on top of it, I mean, it's it's just devastating. It's crushing. Okay, let's talk about some of the the other thing that we're seeing. And this is disturbing and troubling. Is, is the sort of the rise of social misery, mm-hmm. especially uh, among the poorest, uh, the people who are homeless, the most vulnerable. Um, yesterday, with unbelievably terrible story, it's almost too shocking to even say when they found a, a the body of a deceased infant in a, a portable bathroom in the downtown east side, which is just it's almost too shocking to say it. But you know, it happened. Uh, in Victoria, where you live, uh, there, we see these sprawling homeless camps now. I've, 
you know, I've never seen homeless camps like on Pandora Street in downtown Victoria. I, and I think I counted almost 200 tents down there Yeah, I, the other day. And they set up another one in a park called Topaz Park in Victoria. And these places, there's a lot of problems with these places. I live a block from the one on Pandora. And I, I we've watched it expand every day, uh, grow every day, and of course look a little more decrepit every day. Uh, there's been a rise in crime. Um, I guess there's been two deaths, two in each. There's been two deaths there now. Uh, yeah. And then two in Topaz as well, so four total. Wow. And uh, there's been a lot of stories of people being assaulted, uh, attempted breaking ins, people with weapons. The police said that people in the tents themselves are arming themselves. Uh, and part of the reason for this is that um, uh, the Victoria chief of police was saying the price of street drugs has doubled because the supply has been interrupted and it's less safe, which is driving addicts to you know be more and more desperate to uh, get obtain m much more unsafe drugs. Yeah, so we see these kind of pressures in Victoria. I'm, the same thing I'm sure is going on in, in places like the downtown east side is you know misery rises. I have a listen to this. Now speaking of the the police chief in Victoria, you're going to hear his voice here in this clip. This is um, from Czech TV and their very fine reporter, April Lawrence, here. Have a listen. Victoria police are back at Topaz Park, where they say there's been a significant jump in crime and violence since a temporary homeless shelter was opened a month ago. Break and enter, uh, arsons, theft, mischief, stolen property. On the weekend, Mannix's officers were called after a man at the park pulled a handgun during a dispute. Rabbi Meyer Kaplan says his neighborhood is living in fear. Since... The, the tent city moved to here. Um, we had every single night people trying to break into the building, stealing things from the property. Okay, I think you could see potentially more of this. Does government got to step in and do something? Not only in Victoria, but in other cities around BC too. I, I think they have no choice. I mean, the situation is just indescribable if you drive or, or God help you, walk by. it's um, the, the people in these camps are... They're in living in misery. I mean, something needs to be done. But I mean, also for the residents and businesses around them, who are, this, you know, young mothers being attacked with axes. It's just not a situation that can last. We continue talking about the economy and the COVID-19 pandemic. Coming up the bottom of the hour, I'm going to have two members of BC's Economic Recovery Task Force that's been put together by the BC government. So we'll take a closer look at the challenges facing the province's economy and how we're going to get out of it. And should there be a more detailed plan being put in front of British Columbians here for how we're going to emerge from this thing? We see other jurisdictions doing it now. Call me on that. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. McLean K is my guest. Let's go to Dave in Abbotsford. Hi, Dave. Good morning, Mike. Hi. Good morning, Hi. Uh, your guest. McLean. Yeah. McLean. Sorry. It's okay. Go ahead. Um, just want to thank you for highlighting this. I think... Uh, for me anyways, and I think it's an underlying thing with a lot of the people, is that at this point, there's been no verbalized plan of how we're going to get out of this, um, and it raises a lot of anxiety. And I think uh, in the news report, you were talking about uh, the marginalized people in society and how uh, they're disproportionately being affected by this and the rising crime that's associated with that. I think if there there isn't a plan soon going forward, you're going to see more of that. It's going to be not just the marginalized people. It's going to be the people, you know, who have lost their jobs and they don't have a lot of hope because there is no verbalized plan of, you know, what the future holds. Dave, thank you for the call. Well, I guess, you know, what, what the uh, public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has said is that 
we will start to develop a plan and we can start opening stuff up and they are talking about it but she wants the caseload to be dramatically flattened now she mentioned in her news conference yesterday and we're going to get deeper into this on the show today later is that she would like to see zero new cases a day uh including like for many months now is that that's what she would love to see now that doesn't mean that you know she's not saying you got to get to zero before you start opening up it's just that that's what she would like to see happen i guess we'd all like to see that happen but at some point do the politicians got to step in and start art articulating a policy vision and plan to say this is what's going to happen even if we're not at zero if we can flatten this thing down to a small number then we start opening up well, that's it exactly. I, I don't think anyone is suggesting we need a set-in-stone plan. On May the 15th, these businesses will open. It will always have to be flexible and reactive, and there's always the potential of a second wave. And as for Dr. Bonnie Henry, I mean, I, I understand her reluctance. She can't put herself in the position of saying, you know, 10 new cases per day is safe. Of course it's not. But at a certain point, you have to start planning for what comes next. Yeah, because the thing is, though, and this is kind of unspoken by a lot of people, like if, if you talk to people on, on background or off the record in the business community, I, you sense sort of frustration with the lack of a plan. And when you hear uh, Bonnie Henry, who's, by the way, universally respected, so I'm not criticizing her, but when she says like something like, uh, you know, we may have to restrict travel for 18 months. You know, I know that there are people at the Vancouver airport, there are people at the Vancouver Convention Center who are saying like, what, 18 months? Really? Like, can we get some more clarity on it? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Matthew in Cloverdale, hi. Hi there, Mike. How you doing? Good. Go ahead. Yeah, so I just uh, I'm just have general concerns about whether things are going to be okay for my new business. I just started at the beginning of this year. Um, we haven't been seeming to, you know... It's been a bit of a process trying to get through the the beginning of this virus, but what kind of business yeah, look, do you what kind of business do you got? I own a painting company. Okay, are you getting any work at all? You know, we're still getting jobs here and there, and uh, yeah. other uh, business friends like who who own businesses are showing the same concern. So we're helping them out with projects too. You know, it's just we're trying the best we can to get our name out there and. But it's, a, it's a definitely a scary time to uh, be a new business owner, I'll tell you that. Okay, Matthew, thank you for calling in. I hope things turn around for you real quick. Let's squeeze another one in. Leo, calling in from Mission. Hey, Leo, got to go quick, though. Yeah, okay, um, open her up. What are you waiting for? There's nobody in the hospitals. They're empty. Like, what is the problem here? I don't get it. Like, we're letting doctors run our province. This is okay. ridiculous. They got to, you know, doctors, okay, they want to save everybody. That's nice, but... Reality is, we've got to work. We've got to get back into going. What, what are we waiting for? Okay, Leo, thank you. Well, there's 100 people in the hospital, uh, but we're a province of 5 million. Now, okay, we got a minute left, but McLean, you tell me. I mean, you know, right now, I, th I think we're, I think we got to let the health professionals run this, at least for now. But I think people are starting to see where the, where the, where's the political leadership? We, Bonnie Henry was not elected. We elected the government here to lead us out of this thing. 30 seconds. Yeah, I think the, 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 we're trending in the right direction and we have to continue trending in the right direction. And the idea of a plan is not to say open up today. It's to say when we do open up, it'll look like this and it'll be yeah. flexible. Yeah. And when will we see that? I got a feeling in the next couple of weeks, I, I, we're going to start, there'll be more pressure to put, you know, more details in front of people. 
I hope next week. Okay, we'll see. Thank you for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank that you. That is. Where's your? What's your website, by the way? For uh, theorca.ca. We'll come back, Mike Smith, here with you as we continue talking about the uh, federal Conservative Party leadership race. Now, uh, very pleased to welcome Rick Peterson. He's an Edmonton or an Alberta-based businessman who w- was seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party. Rick, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Pleasure to be here. So as I understand it, Rick, you, your, your leadership bid for the party now is, is not going forward. Is that correct? You didn't get enough signatures? Or what happened there? Uh, there were seven of us candidates, Mike, who qualified for the start of the race. And uh, we needed to meet a certain number of signature deadlines by the end of February. Uh, we did that. <clears throat> and then we had to meet a second batch. We needed to get 2,000 signatures um, over and above that by the end of March and uh, weren't able to hit that level, and that's due primarily to the COVID crisis, which kind of froze everybody meeting and getting out and having AGMs. And uh, so the three of us who didn't qualify were Marilyn Gladue and Rudy Husney and myself. So we're, we were eliminated from the contest. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's they should have changed the rules there, given, the, given this pandemic we're dealing with? Well, the NHL, the NBA, uh, most other organizations, and half of Canada shut down. Actually, all of Canada shut down, Mike, on the 12th of March. And the conservative leadership campaign continued till the 27th or 28th, and then they shut it down after that. So I'll let you make whatever conclusions you'd like on that. Why, why did you want to be the leader of this party? What was your, your message to members of the Conservative Party? The only candidate from Western Canada, coming from a business background, fluently bilingual, good supporting Quebec, and um, the party needs to broaden its base, Mike. There are a number of ways to do it, but uh, coming from 30 years of uh, support and work with the Conservative Party federally and working across Canada, a good understanding of, uh, of the economy and some good, strong, what we thought, ideas on taxation and the fiscal side of it. So um, those were elements that got us into the race. Right. Would have supported Ronna Ambrose, um, but she decided at the last minute not to run, so we put our campaign together in a short order and uh, had a good run, but just came up short on the signature side. All right, I'm speaking to Alberta businessman Rick Peterson and his bid for the federal Conservative Party leadership. Uh, it's not going forward now, as you heard him describe there. Rick, let me ask you about some of the turmoil that we're seeing in this leadership race, especially as it revolves around Conservative MP Derek Sloan, one of your competitors for this job. He is running for the leadership of the party. And let's be clear, this guy is like a first-term MP from Ontario, uh, he is a fringe candidate for the leadership of this party. He is not going to be the leader of the federal conservative party, but he is an official candidate and his candidacy is going forward. And a lot of people are very upset with his attack on Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's federal public health officer. Let's have a listen here, Rick, to what he said about her. Here is MP, a conservative MP, Derek Sloan reliance on the advice of Dr. Teresa Tam. Teresa Tam, uh, we sent an email out today asking, does she work for Canada or for China? And I encourage you to read that email. There's some interesting information in there. It was Dr. Teresa Tam who is on a a special panel on the World Health Organization right now. Uh, She also parrots their information at every available opportunity. We know for a fact that China covered up uh, many uh, details concerning the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, there's been a study uh, that was done in England that suggested if China had come out with the truth, we could have potentially avoided up to 90% of the cases that we have today. 
Okay, I think it's fair game, Rick, to criticize China. A lot of people are doing that. But what did you think about him calling out Canada's top public health officer and, and questioning her loyalties and whether she's working for China? Of course, she's an Asian woman herself. A lot of people thought it was a smack of racism. What are your thoughts? Well, it was. It was racist. It was out of line. Should have been called out. But keep in mind, this is the same guy a couple of weeks ago actually came out in support of uh, conversion therapy. But I'm going to back up, Mike. Um, I don't think Derek is a fringe candidate. There are only four candidates on this final ballot. Two of them are there because of strong nationwide support of social conservative groups who have basically one issue, which is to bring back the debate on abortion. So Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan, uh, Leslie Lewis is not an MP. Uh, Derek is a first-term MP, but to get the nomination signatures that were required, Mike, in that short period of time, they have played by the rules and they have qualified on the strength of support across Canada from pro-life groups. And there's nothing wrong with that. You may agree or disagree with it. Sure, yeah. So the way that the ballots go, Mike, just to back up on this, is the voting by the memberships is ranked voting. So your number one, your number two, your number three, your number four choices. It is absolutely possible that Derek Sloan or Leslie Lewis or Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay any one of those four has an equal chance of becoming a leader. If you remember on 2017, Andrew Scheer won on the very last ballot because of the number yeah. two votes. So don't say he's a fringe candidate. He could be the next leader of the Conservative Party. Well, okay, okay. I'll, be, I'll be shocked if that happens, but I, I take your point. L- let me let's play something else here for you. Now, this is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer under pressure here as he's asked about these comments by his MP, Derek Sloan, about... Teresa Tam. Now listen closely to this. I'm going to play this at length a little bit here because you're going to hear multiple reporters trying to get Andrew Scheer here to comment on what this his MP said here. Here's the federal conservative leader. So as a rule, I don't uh, comment on leadership candidates or on uh, on policy announcements or positions that leadership candidates have taken. I'll leave it to each leadership candidate to uh, speak for themselves and explain uh, their views and ultimately it will be up to members to uh, select the next leader of the party. Mr. Sloan is still a member of your caucus, and he's peddling conspiracy theories. That's the criticism here. So why won't you comment on that? Do you, do you as well think that Dr. Theresa Tam should be fired? And do you think that she was peddling misinformation from the Chinese Communist Party during the beginning of this pandemic? As I just said, I, I, I believe this government needs to be held accountable for decisions that they made based on the advice that they chose to listen to. So uh, our focus is holding ministers and the prime minister accountable. Derek Sloan's comments are being called racist. Uh, He's suggesting that Dr. Tam is somehow an agent of China because of her race, it appears. You are still the leader of the party. You have chosen to maintain your role as leader until a new leader is elected. Is he welcome in your caucus? As I said, uh, I do not comment. I have not, nor will I in the future. Uh, Comment on individual positions or statements by leadership candidates. I have just explained what our caucus position is. Our caucus position is that the government needs to be held accountable for its decisions. That is what we will continue to do. He was welcomed into the Conservative Party under your mandate. He won his nomination under your mandate as leader. Um, Do you stand by welcoming him into the party? As I said, I won't be commenting on individual statements or positions that leadership candidates take. That's up for them to explain. And ultimately, 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 the members of our party will decide in when they vote in the leadership race. 
All right, Andrew Scheer, leader of the Federal Conservative Party there, talking about uh, Derek Sloan, the conservative MP who questioned uh, Dr. Theresa Tam and questioned whether she was working for China and not for Canada. My guest is Rick Peterson. He is, uh, until recently, a a leadership candidate in the Conservative Party himself. Rick, what do you think of that performance by Andrew Scheer there? Well, Andrew has whatever reasons he has to not answer the question, but of interest again, Mike, and it comes back to what I just uh, put on the table. None of the other three leadership candidates commented on this neither none of them called out mike sloan for this and the reason for that mike is they all want to have uh derek's number two votes or number three votes there's only four or five mps who stood up uh, michael chong was one michelle rempel garner was one yeah and two others who stood up and called sloan's comments for what they were which were racist and out of place but um there's a leadership race going on people are sensitive and i think andrew wanting to stay neutral and that's his call, whether he does that or not. But it's um, uh, these are comments that have to be called out, and, and people have reasons for doing it or not. Do you, do you think, though, that, I mean, I think criticism of China is fair game, right? I mean, if we take a look at the record of China, especially early on, when this pandemic erupted in Wuhan, China, and what they said to the world, and what the World Health Organization said about the outbreak at the beginning, and whether China had undue influence with the World Health Organization. Like, I think all of that is, is legit. Do you? Do you think it's, it's, that's legitimate criticism? Not, not only is it legitimate, uh, there's yeah. a good, strong group of conservatives, uh, MPs, who, who are doing that, Mike, who are doing that right. now, who are standing up and asking these questions. There is a way to do it, and uh, our caucus has a tremendous number of strong MPs that are doing that, but Derek Sloan is not one of them. Yeah, so he crossed the line when he questioned her loyalties and questioned whether she was working for China. That's where he crossed the line, right? That is, I think, pretty clear to most of us, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, okay. So what did you think about, like, when you say it, for for Andrew Scheer, he's within his rights not, I guess, not to comment on this guy, but, you know, he was called out not only about the comments that this MP made, but also just asked straight up, is he, is he still welcome to be a, a, a member of the Conservative caucus? And he didn't even want to go there. So what do you think about the, what do you think about the leadership of this, of this party in the direction of the Conservative party right here, right now? I mean, is it, is this like a party in turmoil? I mean, or do you think the party is being effective in holding the government accountable? Mike, I'm not going to let you lead me to throw Andrew or the party under the bus, okay? So what I'm going to say no, to you... I'm just asking you know, your, I'm just asking your opinion. You are, and you've been around the block several times. You know that Andrew is the interim leader. He's being exceptionally careful not to show sides in the leadership race, and that's his prerogative, okay? Everybody else has the right to say what they do. People have, and I think that uh, Derek's profile and his uh, comments are out of place. That's my personal view. But we yeah. are in a leadership race, and everybody is doing the best they can to maintain the neutrality. Those of us who've called Sloan out for what he uh, has said have made it clear. Others have decided not to comment. So no throwing anybody under the bus here, Mike, okay? All right. And speaking of Rick Peterson, he's uh, until recently a, a candidate for the Federal Conservative Party leadership. I think it's a, it's a, this is a difficult time for opposition parties in general, because I think people are concerned uh, in, in some cases, afraid about what's going on with this virus, and they're looking for their leaders to lead them through the crisis. So I think that's why you're seeing, you know, there's some polls indicating that Justin Trudeau's approval numbers are going up, for example, and the Conservative Party's numbers are, are going down. But I would suggest to you that I think the Conservative Party has raised a lot of really good points. Uh, when When Justin Trudeau tried to pass a bill to give him uh, ultimate power to pass laws and raise taxes for over a year without the consent of parliament 
It was the conservative party that stood up and said, hell no. And, and Trudeau had to back down on that. So I think the conservatives have been effective in, in holding this government to account to an extent. But do you think it's a difficult situation for any opposition party right now? That's a very good point, Mike, and it is. Um, but there is no doubt that the Conservative Party, I think we want to elect a leader as soon as we can because, uh, you know, this is partisan politics. And yes, um, we are in a national crisis. But on the other hand, the role of the opposition and the role of the leader of the opposition is to point out and ask questions and try to make whatever responses the government has better. And you pointed out accurately in that bill, there were uh, total overstretch from the federal liberals yeah. on taxation powers and good for the you know good for the opposition to pick it up so it's a delicate balancing act mike but democracy is better and government is better when you have a strong opposition and that's what the conservatives are doing with uh the current lineup that they have and as soon as they have a leader as soon as we have a leader that'll make it easier to point to that one person to uh to make these points. Last question for you. Do you think the government should be open up to more s- scrutiny? Like, do you think the House of Commons should be back in session, even if it's just with a quorum, so we don't have people packed into the House of Commons and, and risking spread of this virus, but we bring in a small number of MPs and we get question period going again? Absolutely. I love question period, and I think it's important that when you see the body language and you hear the questions and you hear the answers, uh, I think we've all been on our fair share of Zoom and Skype conferences, Mike, over the last couple of weeks, and as good as they are, there's nothing like a real live debate. And if there are, you know, 20 people in each side uh, exchanging live questions, I think um, I think we're way better off for that. And, and I'm a big believer in 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 that happening. So I I totally agree with you on that question, as I think a lot of Canadians do. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Nova Scotia shooting rampage now, the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history. And we're learning more today about the timeline in this horrific sequence of events. The RCMP held a news conference this morning about the rural killing spree that was unleashed by Gabriel Wortman. It started Saturday night. It stretched into Sunday. He was disguised as a police officer. He was driving a replica RCMP cruiser. By the time it was over, he had killed 22 people, injured three more, left 16 crime scenes in his wake, including homes that were burned to the ground. How did it start? How did it end? We're learning a lot more of those details and the answers to those questions today. I'm joined to talk about it now by Ari Goldkind, a criminal lawyer in Toronto, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ari, thanks a lot for doing this again. Great to be on with you, Mike. Okay, we've heard a lot of new details about precisely what happened here. There was a a news conference with a lot of chilling details here this morning, and you're going to hear the voice here of RCMP Police Superintendent Darren Campbell and Ari, we'll go through some of these details and listen to some uh, clips from this news conference and get your analysis here. Let's start with, here's uh, Superintendent Darren Campbell uh, talking about how this guy had an advantage over the police. Have a listen. I've been a police officer for almost 30 years now, and I can't imagine any more uh, horrific uh, set of circumstances uh, when you're trying to search for someone that looks like you. Uh, the dangers that that causes, the complications that that causes. Um, That obviously was um, uh, an advantage that the suspect had on the police, that he had on the public, that he had on every person that he encountered uh, through the course of his rampage. 
Okay, I think this is the fact that he was wearing a real police uniform, Ari, and he was he was driving a police cruiser that it almost looked like an exact replica. When you saw the photos of it, it looked very, very convincing. And he had more than one replica vehicle, we understand now. So here's the take I have of this, because I followed that this morning and I'm up to date on the developments. And I think there's a lot of reverse engineering of this very sad, tragic situation. And one of the things that's drawing, in my view, inappropriate attention is the fact that he had these knockoff police cars. That is a red herring to me, because if you look at the reason he told his neighbor he had them, which a lot of Canadians have not seen that detail yet, which is he had a bunch of cottages and properties that were constantly getting broken into. And if you can put a knockoff cheap police car or looking like a knockoff police car for a grand or two in front of your cottage, imagine you're in BC, you know, you're out on the island, you're in Tofino, you're getting broken into. Would you not pay $1,000 to decal up a car and keep it in front of your property? Nobody's going to go break into break and enter into your house there that's the ostensible reason he's done it the idea that anybody would think that somebody who's done that nice the old cop cars on the street here they're just they just exist the idea that that's somehow a prognostication or a foreshadowing that gabriel wartman is then going to go out and shoot 22 people two cops and the the spree that he goes on for 12 hours i have a real difficulty with people looking for a scapegoat uh, somebody to be punished other than Gabriel Wortman and or, in my view, which is still an important part of the story, the fact that an Amber Alert didn't go out for uh-huh. this, yeah. but Amber Alerts constantly go out for a missing child or worse, to socially distance for the coronavirus. Yeah, there definitely should have been that alert have gone out. I think it could have saved lives. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how this whole thing started. And we're learning from the police today that... This began on Saturday night and that Wortman had restrained and beat a a woman he was in a relationship with at his home in Portopic, Nova Scotia, apparently tied her up. And thank God she was able to escape and she hid in the woods until the next morning and notified the police and cooperated with the police. And that's how the police were able to get a photograph of the guy and know that he was driving a, pol- a, a replica police cruiser and wearing, potentially wearing a police uniform. Thank goodness she was able to escape this guy. How, how critical do you think that was? I think it was probably very critical, including the police uniform part. That's the part yeah. that leads most to my criticism of the no Amber Alert going out, yeah. that about a couple hours would have saved at least a number of those lives. She didn't escape the woods for quite some period of time, but clearly that information that she provided was crucial because why else would anybody think Gabriel Wartman in a police uniform was anything other than an RCMP officer? The part of the story I don't like, again, is that this part of the story is being used by the usual suspects to now to go out and suggest this was like the Montreal Polytechnic shooting, that he's a misogynist, and this was all about hatred of women. Until the RCMP come out, And look, a lot of the evidence here has been destroyed when he blew up and firebombed his home. But, you know, this was not a situation where just women were killed. Yes, what he did with his girlfriend is egregious. But I now see a lot of reporting going down the road that this all happened because he's a misogynist and hates women. I think going down that road, uh, Mike, is really one that one should be very judicious and reserved to. We always need to come up with something that suits people's political politics that's what we see with the virus now the left thinks this the left the right thinks that 
Let the RCMP do what they want to do. But the fact that this man killed 22 uh, individual people is a sign of pure evil. Anybody else using it to further their political narrative, I really think should be looking at themselves in the mirror. Okay, well, he killed a lot of people, men and women. Let's talk about one of the people that, that he killed, Ari, and that is RCMP Constable Heidi Stevenson tragically losing yeah. her life in the, in the line of duty here and, and police describing how, how that happened today. And we learned that uh, he was driving that replica police cruiser, that another RCMP officer may have mistaken him for Heidi Stevenson, that they had arranged uh, to meet on a, near a, on a highway. The gunman opened fire on Constable Chad Morrison of the RCMP. He was hit several times. Uh, he did survive. He managed to drive away, notifying dispatch and other officers that he'd been hit. Meanwhile, Constable Heidi Stevenson uh, sadly crashed, ended up being a collision with, uh, with the, the gunman's vehicle, and she ended up being shot dead. Now have a listen to this. Here's RCMP Police Superintendent Darren Campbell talking about the loss of the life of Constable Stevenson. Well, the gunman was traveling southbound on Highway 2 at that time. At that point, both vehicles collided head-on. Constable Stevenson engaged the gunman. The gunman took Constable's, Constable Stevenson's life. He also took Constable Stevenson's issued sidearm and her magazines. Okay, a lot of people wearing red across the country today to honor this uh, fallen police officer, Ari. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on how she lost her life there? Uh, well, let's talk about her for a second. This ties into yeah. my point about the misogynist angle that's all over certain news outlets right now. What does that say to Mr. Morrison and every other man that lost his life? This man was not targeting women exclusively as egregious as the beating of his girlfriend was. So I'm troubled by that. You look at what was done to Officer Morrison. And I'm going to get to the civilians in a moment because I'm not a big fan here of the idea that we're only talking about Heidi Stevenson at the expense of all the other uh, great people and law-abiding people. Like, yes, it's worse, I suppose, in some eyes that an officer in the line of duty was shot, but I don't want to ignore the other 21 people that were brutally murdered by him too, including people that stopped, by the way, as you know, Mike, people that stopped to help once they saw the RCMP officers yeah. in trouble. He yeah. blew some of them away too, and their lives to me are names that should be mattered. To the Miss Stevenson who was killed, it's an element of evil and brutality because he ran into her head-on, a head-on collision to get her off the road, and then in the literalist of coldest of blood. This is why I don't think we talk about evil enough in this society. We're going to start blaming RCMP and Amber Alerts and Twitter and all this. Gabriel Wartman is just a pure piece of evil, and unfortunately that walks amongst us. And what was done to Miss Stevenson... I almost can't even think of Miss Stevenson right now. I think about her family and the people that hope that she comes home every day and on behalf of all officers. And I'm in court every day with police officers, and I have to go against some of them, Mike. But I'll tell you this. The idea that an officer doesn't make it home at the end of their shift to their family, their husband, their children, I really think a lot of people who are always sort of anti-cop or always pro-rights of everybody else, really need to think about what it's like when you go to work, even in a peaceful, pastoral place like Nova Scotia, and at the end of the day, somebody's mommy or wife doesn't come home. I think people need to let that sink in.